HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's show is brought to you by Bob's Red Mill, sharing nothing but the best in whole grain nutrition and committed to their mission of good food for all. Learn more at bobsredmill.com slash podcast. My name is Hannah Forden. I'm the membership coordinator at Heritage Radio Network, but even before I joined the team, I loved listening to HRN during my subway commute. It made the time go quickly and left me feeling inspired for the day ahead. HRN listeners tune in from all over the world, but there are a few traits that we all have in common, no matter where we listen from. A curious palate, the fierceness to make a difference, and a hunger for lifelong learning about the culinary world. As you know, Heritage Radio Network is a listener-supported nonprofit. To deliver the most ambitious, entertaining, and of-the-moment stories in 2018, we need your help. We need to raise $150,000 by December 31st to accomplish these goals and to keep your favorite shows on the air. Together, we can make this HRN's most exciting, impactful, and delicious year yet. Become a member by donating today. Join us at heritageradionetwork.org slash donate, and you'll immediately start enjoying benefits such as VIP invitations to HRN events, where you will mix and mingle with your favorite hosts. Memberships also make a perfect holiday gift for all the foodies in your life. This year, why not give the gift of food radio? You'll hear your generosity in action for the year to come. Help keep our lights on and our mics hot by pledging your support today at heritageradionetwork.org slash donate. Thanks for listening. Hey, and welcome to the food scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkel, here today with Victoria Blamey of Chumleys. Um, and when I was writing notes, it kept on changing Chumleys to chimneys. And that, that made me uh, relive the terrible moment in 2007 where, what, the, the actual chimney uh, structure oh, of Chum... Well, not there, but oh, okay. in my heart I was. Uh-huh. Uh, you know, a structure of Chumleys at, what, 86 Bedford uh-huh. Street detached and the building crumbled. I mean, this was 10 years ago, this legacy of New York, a roaring 20s establishment, a speakeasy where writers like Fitzgerald and and Hemingway would go, um, collapsed. 
and then there was 10 years without this thing, and now you're there. Now you are a chef of, of this, <laughs> this, this amazing bridge of history in New York, mm-hmm. and you're not even a New Yorker. I'm not even a New Yorker. Well, maybe I'll qualify in a couple of years. I've been here for eight. So oh, yeah. That, that 10-year hump. I, I don't yeah. know if it's truly real. Uh, uh, I've been here for 13, 14 years. And uh-huh. you have to kind of pick and choose who you call yourself a New Yorker to. Because oh, you really? have to... Yeah, if, if they're a New Yorker, uh, tried and true. Probably I would say I'm a citizen of the world. You so are. That would be it. initially, you were a citizen of Chile. Yeah, I am. And talk to me about Santiago and the fare there, the cuisine, and you know what you grew up cooking and eating um i grew up eating well i think my family in general was um always eating out you know um my grandfather was a gourmand he loved drinking wine shucking oysters you know eating imported pickled onions from i don't even know (laughs) where to make his you know whatever cocktails he was making uh and um uh, probably we were a little fancy. Uh, my mom would always want me to try different things, even though she wouldn't cook. You know, she was working all the time. Um, but I think we, I was always very, um, I think, exposed to trying all seafood. My mom would want me to be, like, you know, exposed to all these different things in Santiago. Um, I think in general the, the, food has, the food scene has changed so much, uh, probably in the last 10 years. Um, there are so many cool restaurants right now. I've been there, um, I would say like the last three years, like, um, I've seen like six or seven different restaurants that are actually making it into like international news. And, um, Borago, for example, is a very uh, good friend of mine. He's coming this week to do, uh, you know, food and wine here. Um, he's like number four in the world. Pellegrino. So it's it's really interesting to see how the younger uh, generation, what actually is like more like my generation, has been, you know, trying to promote more like the produce and the product that we have into their own cuisine. You know, I think Chilean cuisine doesn't have such a big identity like Mexico, for example, like Mexican cuisine or even, uh, uh, I would say, Peruvian cuisine. You know, they're so exquisite. And I think Chile is trying to, always trying to dig in the past, but also looking at the future and like, look at what we have and what we produce. So I think that's more interesting, you know? Yeah. I mean, there is this allegory on the menu at Chumley's now. There is a stew that you serve as a pot pie. Oh, that was last year. Yeah. yeah. I was doing a chupe and then, yeah, we got a chupe pot pie. Yeah. yeah. What, what is chupe? Well, chupe is a preparation that's actually also Peruvian. Um, it's almost like a very thick stew uh, based on uh, bread. Uh, it's usually seafood and usually has cheese as well. So it's quite rich. Um, we will do it all the time with abalone. Unfortunately, abalone is like pretty rare these days in Chile. Um, and overfishing, that's a big problem as well, you know, that we have. Um, but uh, it will be done with abalone. Um, it took me years actually to get used to it. I wasn't a, the only thing I wasn't a big fan of growing up was abalone because I got sick when I was a kid. The moment I ate it, then years later, I loved it. And I just wanted to do something that had to do with um, that Victoria that I don't know that much about. You know, there's a part of me that I don't identify myself a lot with Chilean things. And one of those is food sometimes. And I just want to always go back to that and see how I can interpret 
myself at Chamblis, you know. Yeah, I mean, why didn't you move to coastal California where abalone is is, is <laughs> fresh and wide? I mean, that seems more uh, akin to where Chile is in the world. Probably, yeah. Um, well, the reason why I came to New York is because I got married. Um, I wasn't really looking to move to New York at all. I was in Europe. Um, I dated my ex-husband now for on and off 10 years. And I think it was this battle that we had of, come on, when are you coming? When are you coming? And I was like, no, 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 no. It's England, Australia, Mexico. And then we just, you know, things made sense. And I just, I moved here. I mean, let's go back to England, uh -huh. Australia, and Spain as well, because these were formative countries of your culinary career. Yeah, absolutely. Why Australia? Why England? And what did Spain do to you to bring you here? Um, I would say England was... Um, I was determined to go back. I went the first time when I was 17 uh, to study English. I went to Cambridge for a year. I took a gap year because my mom was uh, very keen on it. She's like, I think you should take a gap year, learn English, and then come back and go to college. And I was like, okay. Took it very seriously. Um, I lived a whole year in Cambridge. Um, I don't know why I, I did connect a lot with the culture in England. And when I went back to Chile, I went back to study history. Um, I always used to cook, by the way, since I was like seven. And at one point, I was cooking more than I was like so involved with history. <laughs> and I always had really good grades. I was a very good student, very dedicated. And um, But my passion was just like kind of falling off. It was going more into this just cooking, you know what I mean? I was cooking for my mom. I usually just with my mom every day. And... And it's just this very passionate feeling when I was cooking. I don't know if it makes any sense what I'm yeah, saying. But I mean, when did you see these parallels in cooking and history, though? Because, you know, a lot of what we see on a plate these days isn't just out of the ether. There's etymology to it. Absolutely. Well, I think it actually helps me a lot, too, when I'm creating dishes. I'm, I think about it a lot. You know, I'm very academic, I think, sometimes when I... It, it can be really torturous, too, you know. Um, but at then at one point, I was like, okay, you know what? I basically stopped history I was like okay I'm gonna um, quit I'm gonna go into cooking school my mom was like okay god I hope this is <laughs> gonna be the one and I was like yeah this is it I was 21 and and I immersed myself into cooking school and then my first thing was like I had to do two externships that was part of my degree and my first externship I wanted to go to England so I wrote a letter because at that time it was like 2001 and internet was like sort of you know, booming, but I, saw, I sent an email and I was very old school. I'm very old school for a bunch of things. So sent a letter. I also sent an email to uh, the Savoy Grill where Gordon Ramsay took over at that time. And I got my first externship in England. So I went there, um, did my four months. It was also traumatic, but beautiful. Um, went back, finished my last year. And then my third year, I went back to England again because I found a book that I love so much and I went to work for that chef for two years. So England to me was always in my mind. And I've always been very focused and very determined to what I want to do. Um, and I wanted to go there so badly, and I did. I wanted to get a job so badly, I did. Um, I, was, I put like 200% on that. And my heart was in there. And, and that was that. You know, Australia was a little different. I think my, more my uh, boyfriend at the time was involved in that. Yeah. I was going to say it was more than an interlude. 
yeah. joking on the fact that yeah. you worked at Interlude. <laughs> Terrible oh, segue, yeah, but I've been waiting yeah. for that one. But but yeah. but it seems like Spain and, uh-huh. and Mugaritz mm-hmm. and meeting specific people there mm. were really important in bringing you to New York as well. I mean, I would say because um, after like Australia was the one that it wasn't. Um, something I was looking for and it was the first time that I didn't actually hey this is what I want to do this is what I where I want to go usually that's how I work all the time and it was more like let me follow my heart follow my heart didn't like it too much and then I was like okay now go back to myself so what did I do I started doing research and I found Mugaret and I just absolutely you know what was funny actually the ex-CDC from Mugaret uh, Dan Hunter he moved back to Australia and when he moved back to Australia, he opened this restaurant in uh, Victoria. Um, and he, funny enough, he worked with my ex-boyfriend. So that's when I started listening to, oh, Mugaritz. And I was like, what the hell is Mugaritz? And then I started listening to uh, Tweezers. I was like, what, Tweezers? And I was like, okay, I need to start researching. Research, love the concept. And I was like, okay, I'm on my way out. And I, you know, left Australia in like two days. Third day, I was in London for a day, packing, buying whatever I needed to buy. And then I was on my way to Spain, like four days after I quit in Melbourne. So, I mean, what was it about Mugaritz other than tweezers that that was part of your allure? I mean, Um, where in Spain is Mugaritz and is it similar to that coastal cuisine? Well, yeah, that's actually interesting. It's very coastal. It's in Donostia, San Sebastian. Uh, It's it's the Basque country. Um, I, you know, I've been to Barcelona before, but I've never been to uh, Donosia. Um, I think what Mugaritz has is something very poetic, so romantic, uh, ethereal, you know, that almost like, almost like you forget is food sometimes, you know, it's a, I love like kind of the literature of it, you know, I think Andoni has, I don't know what it is, it's just poetic himself, you know, his concept is just, um, like out of this world, that's how I think about it. I don't ever want to copy it because that's him and it's not me. But um, try to understand the food that he does took me a little bit. I was coming from something that was like richer, more masculine, which I actually do have a lot of that. And I came to this very feminine, um, almost Buddhist sort of thing, you know. And, I, and it took me like a month to be like, what, what is this? Yeah. I wasn't sure. And yeah, the place, I don't know if you've ever been to San Sebastian, is like crazy beautiful. I wish I can retire there one time if I can. Um, I actually got married there because I was so in love with the place. Um, and the seafood, the food in general, the food scene is just, it's, a, it's just like, it's almost like France, you know, but like they would cook with these chanterelles, right? And they make these scrambled eggs. It's just, they wake up, they have these amazing tomatoes. They already have the olive oil, the sheeps and the cheese, you know. The culture of food is just everyday life, um, which is something that you don't have all the time in Chile, I would say. But how do you take something as zen as San Sebastian and Muguritz and move to the big city, the bustle, the concrete, the noise and, and frenetic energy of New York and still have that calm um huh. or do you <laughs> i was like well how do you know that yeah um i think it's more that i am more new york that i can be mugaritz i think mugaritz is something that i would like to achieve at one point in my life to have that sense of calm and calmness um i'm way more passionate i'm way more noisy loud 
fast and furious sometimes, even though it sounds a little cheesy. And and I just move a thousand miles an hour and I can be super spastic because of that. Um, but that's how it works. So New York fit me like a glove. I didn't know it was going to be that way. I was very apprehensive when I came. Um, I was very judgmental. I am very judgmental. I tried not to, but I was and I am. And um, I met Matt Liner. So the funny thing is, actually, when I came here to get married, and actually my, fir- my the first restaurant that I went to work was uh, Corton. I still go into this, you know, work for these English chefs. My chef in Australia was English as well. So I was like, oh, this is the territory that I know. It's the same language. It was perfect. But um, funny enough, years later, I met Matt Liner in New York. And he's like, hey, I'm here. And I want to open this. And I was like, huh. Okay, and it was just like the most casual conversation outside Atera, which at the time was composed, not knowing what the hell we were going to do. And um, that's exactly why I think that there's no really coincidence in life. You know, I everyone I've met in my life has uh, delivered or like done something for my career or, you know, we're still like in touch or it means something, you know. And, and Matt worked on Muguritz. Yeah, at the he time did. He obviously worked way longer than me. Uh, we met when... He was coming in. I was on my way out. He didn't even speak Spanish. It was super adorable. Uh, <laughs> he was working pastry. I was running the fish station. Uh, and I was, like, also going to the unknown of, like, and what do I do next, you know? Um, I remember they offered me a job to stay. But there was something about being there that didn't really click with me, I had, I, you know, in, uh, in San Sebastian. It's just more like I need to be busy. It needs to be loud you know it needs to be you need to have movement and the winter in san sebastian can be you know probably for some people really nice and you know calm and you can be collected and i don't know what else but for me it was like oh my god i'm gonna die so it's <laughs> like what's gonna happen here i'm gonna be depressed like crazy you know so yeah well i mean i love that there's felicity in your freneticism that there is poetry in your dynamism and on that we're gonna take a quick break mm-hmm. we'll be right back I'm Michael Harlan Turkel, host of The Food Scene and Modernist Breadcrumbs on Heritage Radio Network. I'm here at Bob's Red Mill to find out from Bob himself why his products taste so good. So what's the secret, Bob? To make the best whole grain flour, we look back in time. No modern technology can match the old world engineering of a stone mill. Wow. Bob's Red Mill is using stone mills? How old are we talking here? Well, the stone mills are practically as old as mankind, and no matter what civilization they uncover, they find two stones that people were rubbing together to make uh, something they could eat, whole wheat flour. But the stones that we use are quarried near Paris, France, in La Ferte, and it's the same stone material from the same quarry that the uh, Romans used to make stone mills all over the Roman Empire, of which you can testify by looking at, at uh, Pompeii. It's a quartz material. It has a uniqueness about it. It's very hard. It has a certain porosity, and they put the stones together in a unit of 20 pieces and band it so that they use only the best and, and sharpest parts. It's an ingenious thing. But very old. I mean, thousands of years old. So it's uh, pretty cool. Those sound like some really special stones. How do they work? Stones turning either the top or the bottom stone 
turning at 100 to 125 revolutions per minute, produce a lovely three, four, up to 500 pounds, depends on the, how, how soft the grain is. The bottom stone is the bedstone, and it's also called the nether stone in the Bible, but it also now turns for some configurations. Would you say that using stone mills lead to healthier grains? I know they do. I can watch it. I showed you. <laughs> you know it as well as I do. Uh, the grain goes in the top, goes through the stones, and it comes out. We don't lose anything, and we don't add anything. Thanks for sharing the story of how Bob's Red Mill is using ancient technology to keep their products on the cutting edge. Michael, we think that we can make a difference by sticking by the traditional way of stone milling whole grain, and that's what we're doing. You can learn more at bobsredmill.com slash podcast. And welcome back to The Food Scene. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkel, here today with Victoria Blamey of Chumley's. And now we, we've kind of gone through your path through Chile, mm-hmm. South America, uh, Europe, Australia, and now to New York. And you worked for Paul Liebren at Cortone. You worked for Matt Leitner at Atera. Uh, these were two restaurants that were high concept, kind of like Muguritz in the sense that it was a very personal vision. It was for using... Sure very modern techniques to mm-hmm. express um, very rustic flavor profiles. Mm-hmm. I mean, in reference to rustic dishes. Right. Do you cook like that now? Because explain what Chumley's is and what your vision for, you know, uh, this almost 100-year-old establishment. Um, you know, it's interesting. I think uh, my background never leaves me. I just try to make an interpretation of who I am, of where I'm working, you know. I think it needs to make sense with the space. Um, I obviously cannot do Atera food at Chumley's, uh, even though I think a lot of the Atera things that we did, I w- there was a lot of me in there too. Um, but it, it wouldn't make sense, you know. Um, Technique-wise... I think I was very lucky that when I was working in England 2003, 2004, until 2016, I'm sorry, 2006, the the techniques were so forward. You know, we were doing sous vide already in 2003. Uh, Book just was coming out of John Roca about sous vide. Uh, My chef at the time destroyed the book. It's like, this is garbage, or let me say rubbish. And, you know, I was lucky that we were always having, um, we were always moving forward. So technique-wise, I think the good thing is that I was always looking to work for someone like that. Um, do I use those techniques all the time? Uh, some of them. I can't stop uh, what, what makes me be me, but I need to choose, pick and choose where I'm me, you know, and if it makes sense. So I'm not going to bring a really uh, super difficult technique into Chumley's and uh, basically jeopardize the how to expedite a dish in a kitchen that is like the size of a shoebox, you know. Literally, it's the smallest thing I've seen in my life. Really? So when they rebuilt it, they never asked the chef, like, do you want a little more space? Well, it wasn't really like that how it happened. It yeah. was more like, hey, we're doing this. Do you want to come here? And I was like, hmm, 
Okay, well, I don't do bar food. Yeah. No, it's not. Oh, okay, thanks. Okay, let's go. And this is Alessandro, the owner of Chinese. Yeah, so it wasn't really like, oh, let's just think about this and sit down <laughs> about what you want to do. We already got this in the works. Are you going to come in and do this or not? Yeah. So, I mean, what, what were the few things that he said must be on the menu? Burger and tartare. Yeah, and how did that make you feel right when you heard that? Uh, I said it makes sense. And I said it, those are the two things that make sense to me. And I said, thank God he didn't ask for anything else. Yeah. But there's a but. I mean, it, it's, yes, you can have those, but I'm going to do it Victoria style. Well, for sure. It was like the oysters, you know. We did have a little encounter one time. Then probably he would laugh right now if like a whole afternoon took it about composed oysters. You know, he's like, I don't want them to be composed. And I was like, I can't give you just oysters. Yeah. <laughs> so we're going back and forth. And now we have three composed oysters and people love them. I'm very happy with them. And they fit in the space. I think it's also about... Um, there's a visual aspect to it, how you present the dish, not to scare someone. Um, I knew also that the playware had to make sense in the restaurant. We chose a really old school kind of glam, almost Versace look for the plates. And I think they're super cool. Um, but also to me, they're very difficult to plate because I did not, you know, I didn't work with plates like that. They're almost like a nine inch that I'm uh, constricted to just like work in that space you know usually I was working in places that were like flowy and organic yeah and I don't have a lot of organic well I mean you're working in a restaurant that has no windows I uh, mean you're working in a space that isn't necessarily the most uh, how do you say it transparent outroverted absolutely. I mean it, it was a speakeasy for a reason because people came in there to kind of right. be comfortable and I, I don't think they necessarily went in there for the design, the decor. Of course I mean, not. They went in there to see pictures of other people. Yeah, and then probably hide and then let me be warm and yeah. you know, have as many drinks as I can. And sure. And as much of a scene as it was then, you've turned it into a completely different scene. And I think it's primarily from your cooking, less so the space. Oh, thank you. Um, I just think that I wanted to be very careful with how to dive between casual and fine dining. I think that... It took me, I think, almost a year to now realize that what we do is pretty awesome, you know. Usually I hate that word, but I think we do a lot, you know, for a tiny space like that in a tiny kitchen when we're like, it's pretty cozy, let me put it that way. Not being like, oh, let me be just, we're like right next to each other. Um, sometimes I'm making terrain and then I can barely open the oven door. <laughs> And, you know, I'm super serious when I'm in the kitchen. So sometimes people feel like this tension and we're all like, it's all brewing in this like shoebox. It's like pretty funny. And also I'm loud, you know, I'm like now I'm listening to music in the kitchen. It's something I never did before. So people are very kind of surprised when they come in and they, they hear either loud Marilyn Manson or it can be like Marvin Gaye or I have jazz. But it's like loud and they're like, didn't she work for Paul Libran? Yeah. What? Well, I mean, I, that seems like there's looseness in, in your demeanor, but there's such structure not only to that music, uh, there's refinement in the way you cook. Yeah. Let's get back to that burger and tartare. It's yeah. not like there isn't bone marrow in the burger. There aren't yeah. beef tendons with the tartare. Yeah. Those are distinct choices. Yeah. And, and, you know, you have to be a good cook to execute them so they taste great. They're always going to taste good because of what they are, mm. but to elevate it to a point where it's, it's something ethereal, like you mentioned before, I, how do you do mm, that? I think... Um, a lot of that, and maybe that's why sometimes people may think I'm a little hard or difficult. It's just that I think it's about consistency. So I can give you an amazing burger one day. Um, and then if you come back on a Monday and you want to come back on Friday, I need to give you the same amazing burger, right? 
if I'm going to make this burger that has a bone marrow patty, right, and then it has these fried shallots, I need to make sure that all the steps leading to that are going to be well executed. Then that comes from me. So if I don't give the right instructions and the parameters for that, then it's my fault that it's not happening that way. So these two things that we have, which are very different, you're right. Um, the burger, by the way, happened like in 30 seconds. I made it at home. It was a no-brainer, funny enough. Um, and the tartare took me probably more like a day and not even. I was like, oh, I, I want fat. I want crunch. And then I said, I really don't want a typical tartare. I didn't want to have the Dijon and the capers, even though, funny enough, I love tartare, you know. Like I love a burger with tomato and lettuce, but I didn't want to have that. And it's not so much that I want it to be different, but I wanted to see how do I translate Victoria Blame into a burger, which is this person who's been working for Michelin chefs and hardcore kitchens, and then all of a sudden they ask me to do a burger, which everyone knows I have never cooked many burgers in my life. So I was like, okay, so I need to think about it. And that's when the academic part comes out, you know. I mean, there are Kofi tomatoes. And, and, and the tartare, yeah. yeah. And, and you find those... Does Chupe stew have a tomato aspect to it? It had a confit tomato too. It had like, also I completely got rid of the cheese, the cream and all the fattiness. That I, they had fat, but it was a fat that I wanted to be a little bit more Spanish, you know? So the olive oil, uh, the innards of the crab, that's what made the Chupe so creamy. Uh, there's no, there was no dairy. Um, the puff pastry was just what the translation to a more kind of pedestrian, you know, feel to it so people would, could relate to what it was. Um, actually, someone at work helped me with that. I didn't come up with a puff pastry on top. I was like, oh, this is retarded. And then I was like, wait, if I put puff pastry, people went bananas for it. Yeah. So I was like, I get it. And it's a lack of pedestrian vision. So yeah. it's fine. Um, and I mean, it's these little twists and back to the tartare. It's, yeah. it's, it's having ombra, which I believe is a sheep's cheese yeah, on top. Yeah, it's an age. Yeah. It's a little bit better than manchego, yes. Yeah. And, and having... <laughs> Sorry, Manchego board. Not yeah. that they're sponsors <laughs> yet. But, you know, having those little twists and like cognac in your fried chicken. Yeah. Um, it's not just saying the word, well, we put cognac in our fried chicken. That's why it's so good and so expensive. Mm -hmm. There is something about that ingredient that is inherently good and makes the dish better. I think everything, like I said to you, has to make sense. And to make I don't want random. I don't like randomness. I don't like, like, for example, if I'm going to put a herb on the plate... It's like the Chervo era, right? It's like, I, I, I started with that. That's what I was doing at the Sour Grill, Chervo everywhere. And then at one point I was like, but why do we put Chervo everywhere? Okay, yeah, it looks pretty short. But then something needs to make sense. The comfy tomatoes give you sweetness and acidity to a tartare. You know, the hazelnuts, the nuttiness that I love with meat. Um, the dry-edged beef fat, when you put it on the beef tender cracker, is super umami. Who doesn't like cheese, you know, on a beef tender cracker like that? And who doesn't love ship's milk? I love, that's my favorite cheese is ship's milk. So it's all about, I think it's a very selfish approach probably because it's about the things I want to eat <laughs> and things that I would like to eat over and over again. I try that tartare every night. Every night they're like, chef, tartare. I was like, okay. Chef, fry, yes. And I try a fry. So probably I try 50 fries every day you know, and a piece of tartare every day. It's a little teaspoon. So, yes, they're different, um, but I think they, 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 have, there's some, they have something unique that I love so much, but we were not trying to be different. I don't know if it makes sense, you know. Well, you know, Chumley's turns 100, what, in five years, in 2020. Oh, wow. And 
right now, it's just an amazing time to go and be there because it is certainly a window to history, but it's a window to Victoria. And I only hope that they give you a framed picture on the wall someday. <laughs> I'm a re- I really hate pictures of myself, I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> well, then at least a hand-drawn menu yeah. someday. Uh, true. Well, yeah. Um, I actually saw the menu at one point. I, they did have the menu from the uh, old chef, actually, at the place. So, yeah, I would love to have that, too, for sure. Yeah. Well, you are a permanent piece of history now here in New York. Thank you from, you know, coming from Chile and all throughout the world to leave your impression on, on 86 Bedford Street. Thank you so much. You've been listening to the food scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkel. Hoping to have you back here next Tuesday at 3. Music by Cookies. And a big shout out to David Tattashore Engineering. Cheers. listening to heritage radio network food radio supported by you for our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events subscribe to our newsletter enter your email at the bottom of our website heritageradionetwork.org connect with us on facebook instagram and twitter at heritage underscore radio heritage radio network is a non-profit organization driving conversations to make the world a better fairer more delicious place And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.